0: New Zealand will sell itself as a tourism destination for the wealthy when our borders reopen. That was the message from Stuart Nash to industry leaders at the tourism summit Aotearoa in Wellington, where he addressed them for the first time since his appointment as tourism minister.
1: We get all these uh, these vans driving around at the moment that are not self-contained. So if the, the driver or the passenger wants to go to the toilet, we all we all know examples of this. They pull over the side of the road and they shit in their in our waterways. Well, well, hang on, hang on.
2: Hang on, indeed, we're whipping the welcome mat away from low-budget travellers to New Zealand?
0: We run the risk of becoming the Florida of the South Pacific, just appealing to the Old rich set and uh, become a bit boring and safe. A tourism expert says if the government wants to reset the kind of visitors that come to New Zealand, the incoming minister should be banning cruise ships, not backpackers.
2: But before the borders closed, there was some disquiet about the number of freedom campers overrunning our beauty spots and the baggage they were leaving behind.
0: I just spoke to somebody and they don't have a toilet. They're not self-contained. They got $200 fine, just like that. Even if that there is like toilets in the back, like, like right there, self-contained. You got to do it. It's the dream, right? Parking up amongst the stunning sceneries of New Zealand in your car or campervan to camp for the night. Well, that isn't always the reality of campervan trip in New Zealand. In order to keep New Zealand beautiful, there are restrictions on where you can camp for free, more commonly known as freedom camping.
2: The thing about freedom camping is it's not free. Someone pays. And if it's not the traveller, it's the New Zealand ratepayer, paying for facilities or tidying up after those tourists not schooled on environmentally friendly behaviour. I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, we're looking at an industry that has some big decisions to make.
0: We're at a moment in time, we're at a a crossroads now, where we've had uh, this COVID circuit breaker, uh, and we now have the chance to really critically think about uh, what the future might hold.
2: That's Otago University Tourism Professor James Hyam. He spent the week dissecting the comments of New Tourism Minister Stuart Nash about low-value backpacking visitors.
1: You know, gone are the days. As far as I'm concerned, we hire a cheap van that is not self-contained. And but how, are,
0: how are you going to actually stop that? I mean, this is a marketplace. You're going to ban vans? I
1: will ban the leasing or hiring out of vans to tourists
0: that aren't self-contained. Possibly he was trying to be a little bit provocative, but um, I think he may also have been speaking towards some um, concerns that were recently widely held in Aotearoa before the COVID pandemic, in that, uh, you know, our visitor numbers had increased very, very rapidly over the previous few years, uh, over the previous few decades, but particularly in the last five years or so. Um, We had uh, gone past 4 million. We were heading towards 5 million uh, international visitors per year. Um, And that sheer volume was putting a lot of strain on the industry and raising questions about the value that tourists bring to this country. So I think he was speaking to an issue of growing concern immediately prior to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: So why bring it up now? I mean, no tourists. It seems weird.
0: Yeah, uh, well, the timing is, uh, is associated with the hosting last week of tourism industry, Otaro's Tourism Summit. And uh, so the timing can be explained by the fact that uh, the summit is addressing what the future of tourism may hold. Uh, and we are actually at a, at a moment in time that has been incredibly difficult for the tourism industry. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. Um, but also a time when we do need to anticipate what uh, the future may hold. We have uh, rapid advances being reported just in the last few days around vaccines. Um, and uh, we do need to anticipate that tourism will begin to recover at some point, hopefully soon, but we also need to anticipate what the future of tourism might look like. And that's uh, that was a, a focus of the summit last week, a focus being on what uh, we want to retain that was good about tourism previously, but also what uh, we didn't like, what uh, we might want to discard. Uh, So we're at a moment in time, we're at a a crossroads now, where we've had uh, this COVID circuit breaker, uh, and we now have the chance to really critically think about uh, what the future might hold. And uh, a lot uh, of stock is now being placed on this being an opportunity to think about what a resilient, sustainable and climate safe future may look like for tourism in Aotearoa. Uh, and we do need to think about uh, the value that tourists bring to our um, economy, but also our environment and society.
2: OK, so when you say though we, we might need to think about what we need to discard, um, are you talking about things like these anecdotal reports of, you know, backpackers pooing in the bushes and leaving litter all over campsites and things like that?
0: Yeah, so um, that, is, that has certainly become a, um, an, an issue. And, uh, and we were approaching a, a very important tipping point in some communities. And yes, there's been plenty of anecdotal evidence of, of certain tourist behaviours that have really appalled uh, people in, in some host communities. What are you doing, mate? Hey. What are you doing? Just That's disgusting.
2: A freedom camper has been caught on security camera, defecating in the gutter of a city street in Dunedin.
0: The toilet habits of freedom campers in rural areas has been the subject of much anger in recent years. and Now the problems hit the city streets. looked down, saw something in the gutter and thought well that's not from a dog and I thought i would be check the cameras and see what's going on. I just found that there a couple of freedom campers that had been parked down the road, they had wandered down probably only 50 metres or so from where they stopped. Um, laid this thing in the gutter
1: and then uh, went back to the van. Friday night, about quarter to ten at night, I was driving down the road and I found a German tourist
0: on the side of the road squatted down with his pants off and he was um, doing his business on the side of the road. At a personal level, a couple of years ago, I tramped um, the Abel Tasman coastal track and I remember taking a little side track off uh, off the main track And uh, within about 20 paces, finding that the undergrowth was absolutely littered with human waste. And it was absolutely disgusting. Um, So we did have issues that uh, needed to be resolved that hadn't been resolved. But now we have the chance, we have this, this moment, as I say, to draw breath and to think about, what the future for tourism might look like and how we might uh, avoid or otherwise manage some of the issues that uh, were not uh, serving the sector well previously.
2: But do we discard those people who we think are responsible for this or do we really, you know, put a kick into facilities and start building more public toilets and cheap facilities and places where it's attractive to stay where the rubbish can be collected, that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's uh, that's the point of, of realisation. At the moment, I don't think it's timely to think about discarding uh, tourists. Um, we need to be thinking about rebuilding tourism. But uh, these issues that had become problematic, they can be managed. Um, and we need to think carefully about how we manage and, and where, where responsibility lies uh, for managing these issues. And f- freedom camping had become a, a major issue with freedom campers draining uh, local ratepayer resources and being reliant upon the local ratepayer base for the provision of infrastructures that those tourists were consuming uh, in increasing numbers. So we do need to think about this very carefully and there are there are ways and means of resolving these issues.
2: Yeah, let's just get that ratepayer resources thing first, because this is local councils and the, you know, the whole country is different in its rules to freedom camping because every single area is administered by somebody different. Tourists don't know where the lines are drawn, you know, the information's hard to find. Why doesn't the government just step in and say, OK, we need a coordinated approach to this, there'll be one rule for the whole country and we'll be We'll be providing the rubbish bins.
0: Yeah, well, I think we're moving in that direction. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there has been a lot of confusion at uh, at local and regional levels. And uh, local and regional authorities have uh, have taken slightly different approaches, in some cases taken different approaches that have caused confusion um, amongst travellers. Uh, so there is a lot of merit in taking a coordinated national multi-stakeholder approach to this to try and work out how this can best be managed at, uh, at a national level. I mean a lot of the focus has fallen upon uh, unself-contained vehicles where where people are, are, are travelling freely around the country but uh, having very little management around where they're spending their overnights and, and what facilities are available to them.
2: New Zealand has an amazing and diverse landscape which is perfect for exploring in a campervan.
1: We've created
0: this short video to show you how to freedom camp properly in Greymouth, a beautiful coastal town on the west coast of the South Island.
2: It's really important to know where the facilities are in Greymouth, like public toilets, rubbish bins and dump stations.
0: Right now we have a lot of visitors arriving here, so by respecting the local environment and leaving no trace, we can ensure that Greymouth can welcome future visitors too.
1: Remember that
2: councils can change freedom camping rules very quickly. However, you can find the updated locations and roads all over New Zealand on the free Compromate
0: app. In its very basic form, being self-contained means having an onboard toilet and being able to hold water from your sink, for example. However, being certified self-contained is a little stricter and means the vehicle needs to comply to a strict standard. One uh, approach that's been taken by some authorities has been to provide parking spaces with, with toilet facilities at no cost to uh, to those vehicle users, um, but that that hasn't really proved to be satisfactory because in those same communities we have camping grounds standing empty, and the argument is, of course, that these visitors should pay a nominal fee to stay in a overnight facility, a camping ground facility, where those um, kitchen, cleaning, washing, and toileting facilities are available rather than imposing upon the local ratepayers to provide those facilities for free. And so th- there is an immediate pathway forward.
2: Yeah, but there's the, that's the crux of freedom camping, isn't it? I was watching one YouTube video by a Canadian camper saying, is freedom camping free? You know, they seem to delight in finding the you know the pullover areas, the, the spaces that people don't know about, and just doing it their own way.
0: We're here in the DOC, Department of Conservation Area Lands. We came out here, we found this nice little pullout, We're going to try it. We're going to see what happens, you know. Plead ignorance. I have no idea. We tried to look it up. There's no information. And so is it free? Is it freedom? We're going to find out, especially if the park ranger comes by.
2: You know, is there a certain level at which that doesn't work? Uh,
0: Freedom camping isn't free, is it? Uh, uh, We've just acknowledged that. Facilities are required. Someone has to pay for those facilities. The other issue that, uh, that you've just alluded to is that uh, within a limited system, there are um, points beyond which we cannot uh, continue to allow uh, areas to be used uh, without any management or without any charge. So freedom camping, in principle, involves finding those quiet little places uh, where uh, we can find some solitude and uh, and perhaps park overnight. And, uh, and that's great. But as visitor numbers have uh, passed one million, two million, four million, heading towards five million, that, uh, that becomes untenable. And uh, we've reached that point, we've reached that tipping point prior to COVID, and we need to make sure that we're able to manage these sorts of issues uh, so that they don't arise in the future.
2: You know, I just can't see the government picking this up and saying, don't worry, local councils will come in and coordinate everything and we'll fund it. Can you... <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I think that depends very much on the philosophy of the government of the day. One thing that uh, does encourage me is that uh, we do have a government now that has acknowledged that tourism uh, isn't without costs. And those costs are often borne by, uh, as I say, taxpayers, and that we do need to find ways of resourcing tourism by thinking about who actually pays, who actually pays for tourism. A classic example in this country are our Great Walks in our national parks. Mm. And there is a booking system, of course. There's a user pays charging system for Great Walks. Recently, we've had the system evolve towards international visitors paying more for the Great Walks, the hut facilities than paying uh, Kiwis, uh, which again is a step in the right direction but the Department of Conservation still costs dock more than it makes in income from the Great Walks, so the taxpayer is subsidising tourists' use of Great Walks. And this is something that we need to think about. Who pays for tourism? Mm is a critical question that we need to think about.
2: Well not just who pays too, who you know how do we restrict? I mean the Togotito crossing walk is it's a highway in the summer, you know, and surely once you get to a critical mass situation the the experience is diminished. You know, it's been great really with no international tourists coming in that people have been able to do those walks relatively quietly. How do you solve the problem that is, you know, an overwhelming desire by, by people to, to experience this for themselves?
0: Yeah, well, there's a supply and demand question there. And uh, the example of the Tongariro Crossing is, is a very timely one because I'm planning to do it for the first time this summer. And uh, a driver of that decision is that our borders are closed. And mm. um, it's likely to be a very, very different experience of a, a beautiful national park in this country. Uh, compared to uh, prior to the border being closed. So it's it's uh, basic economics, really, supply and demand. I remember, I think it was 1995 when uh, a booking system was first put in place on the Rootburn track. Of course, there had previously been a booking system imposed on the Milford track because of uh, excessive demand. Uh, I tramped the Rootburn in 1993, stayed at Rootburn Falls Hut, capacity 40 there are over 100 people. There are about 110 people crammed into that hut overnight, um, and it was, just, it was just terrible. You know, it wasn't a national park experience at all. It wasn't uh, offered absolutely no uh, elements of solitude, as you might hope for in, in a, a national park tramp. So in '95, a booking system was uh, implemented on, on the route burn, um, and subsequently the booking system's uh, have become more widely applied simply to try and manage excessive demand for these, uh, for these beautiful places. But then that's uh, within the, the National Park jurisdiction. There are plenty of other beautiful areas around central Otago. I think, uh, for example, of uh, the Blue Pools, a, a short day walk, for example, from, uh, from a roadside car park, or the Mount Roy Lookout, which has become incredibly popular because of Instagram um, and the Instagramability. Of uh, that, that iconic photo spot from uh, the top of Mount Roy uh, overlooking Lake Wanaka. Um, how do you manage demand for these places that are totally open and free to unlimited access? Uh, we need to be thinking about these things but of course uh, we also need to come back to the, the point that the tourism of the future is going to be the, uh, very different to, uh, to the old normal and we can anticipate a reopening of tourism, but it's going to be a very, very different tourism to the uh, one that we knew at the end of last year. And the prospects of returning to four, approaching five million international visitors a year is probably quite a distant prospect at this moment in time.
2: Are you talking about because airlines will take longer to get up and going, that we're relying on a vaccine, that there might be restrictions on people leaving the country and arriving here, those sort of issues?
0: Yeah, the uh, the global tourism system has, has been... Uh, paralysed by COVID-19 and uh, I think uh, a lot of people in New Zealand but also around the world have taken COVID as an opportunity to rethink the way they behave as consumers, rethink the the likelihood that they're going to travel uh, in the ways that they did previously including as as much as they did previously. Uh, Perhaps we'll see a reorientation towards uh, more domestic tourism, um, a reorientation towards more uh, closer to home than long-haul air travel. So the future of aviation, this, the future of the global aviation system with uh, increasing climate concerns and uh, and the rethink opportunity that COVID has provided would suggest that the rapid growth over the years prior to COVID in global tourism may not uh, be restored quickly.
2: And how do we prepare for that, having become so reliant on these big spenders?
0: That's an excellent question. And that is uh, the subject of much consideration and debate at the moment. It's very hard to anticipate what the future might hold, but we have certainly seen an immediate response in this country with uh, Tourism New Zealand focusing, uh, obviously, by default on domestic tourists at this time. So domestic tourism in this country will be very important uh, currently and into the future. Domestic tourism has been neglected previously. We've focused uh, almost exclusively on attracting uh, international visitors to come to this country. But this is precisely what is up for discussion at the moment. The uh, uh, Tourism Futures Task Force is uh, preparing to advise the minister uh, in the new year on what the future of tourism might look like. And these are, are very open questions at this moment in time.
2: You know, taking a step back hasn't been too bad. I mean, there have been silver linings, haven't there? We've rediscovered our own country, and I think there's that new sort of environmental awareness of not travelling too far from home and looking after the places that we love. I mean, could this have been a good thing for us, a real reality check?
0: Uh, It's been an incredibly difficult and challenging time for a lot of people, but you're absolutely right. It it is also a, a time for a reality check. And I think that there is potential for some real positives to flow out of this crisis. Uh, In fact, we have to make sure that positives emerge from this crisis. There are a couple of things that uh, I think are already clearly emerging. One is an awareness and a a desire for a, a new form of tourism, a form of tourism that is regenerative rather than exhaustive. Uh, one that uh, contributes to regenerating nature uh, and culture and community rather than depleting or exhausting those resources. And there is a a formula, there is a model of regenerative tourism that allows visitors to engage very proactively in activities that uh, bring long-term benefits to the destination, uh, its environment and its society, uh, not to mention its economy. New Zealand is our home. It is precious, and everyone who lives and travels here has a responsibility to look after it.
1: What we're looking at at the moment is a unique opportunity for a reset. Okay, we haven't got tourists here at the moment, so we have an opportunity to redefine our global value proposition and market to those who are going to add significant value to our country.
0: So I think regenerative tourism and finding ways for tourists to engage in New Zealand in ways that are carbon neutral, in ways that bring benefits to the environments that they uh, wish to visit and to experience. Uh, I think that's an immediate positive that we're moving towards. A second is an increasing awareness that tourism uh, takes place in communities where people live. And there's an increasing concern that we need to be mindful of the people who live in uh, the communities that tourists visit and pass through, and we need to be very conscious of some of the issues and some of the concerns that may be held by residents. Tourism is indistinguishable from local communities, and it's really important that uh, the future for tourism at uh, the local level gives voice to the people who live with tourism on a day-to-day basis. So I think those are two pathways forward. They're two avenues that I think uh, provide some immediate insight into what uh, the new future for tourism might hold by contrast to uh, the old normal that predated COVID-19.
2: That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform, And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode and thanks to Professor James Hyam. Ka kite